Hey, and welcome back to week nine of 52 Founders. I'm your host, Chrissy Costa, and this week I'm honored to have Andy Sparks, co-founder of Mattermark, a provider of powerful company data to help your business grow. Andy and I had met at Techstars FounderCon in the fall and quickly became fast friends, leading me to beg him to speak at Chicago Boots SeedCon, where the idea for this podcast was born. It was great catching up with Andy to hear more about his entrepreneurial pursuits, including the ones he had as a kid. He's the perfect example of a serial founder, and I can't wait to see where his next endeavor takes him. But enough for me, it's time to hear from Andy himself. Thank you. Yeah, I'm, I'm stoked. Um, so I guess we'll focus mostly on Mattermark today, that I know you're starting your own thing. Um, but yeah, let's start by telling us a little bit about Mattermark and how it came to fruition. Yeah, uh, so this is a fun story. So let's see, about it's like six years ago or something like that, I actually met Danielle at, uh, of all places, South by Southwest. Um, and there was this company called Zarly that had been funded at a startup weekend in like Los Angeles or something like that. And they drove a, a tour bus to South by Southwest. And, uh, we all happened to know some people who were starting that company. And I just met Danielle there and we kind of hit it off. And, uh, I was actually living in Ohio at the time and we became friends and maybe a year later or so I decided to quit my job in Ohio and pack my stuff up and move to Mountain View to start a company with a couple of friends. And I called up Danielle when I got to California and told her that I had just quit my job and I was starting a company and I was trying to get into an accelerator in Mountain View. She said that she had just quit her job and moved to Mountain View and uh, had just gotten into Y Combinator. <laughs> so, and we were actually- No big, no big deal. <laughs> yeah. We were, uh, so we both were startup founders trying to start things and get into accelerators in Mountain View and we lived across the train tracks from each other. And uh, my company, I got into it for all the wrong reasons. I ended up closing it down maybe- eight or nine months after I moved to California. Um, and Danielle had started this company, Referrally, which was eventually turned into Mattermark. But uh, as I was thinking about leaving California and going to New York to accept a job offer, she said, don't go to New York. Why don't you come join uh, my husband, Kevin, and I on, on, at Referrally and we're, you know, because it's probably going to turn into something new and you know, we can kind of start it over and we have some money in the bank already. And um, I said, I'd love to join. So we, we joined up and then we spent a few months just kind of playing around with ideas. And uh, Mattermark actually initially started as something that we wanted to, we wanted to start a, a new media company almost that basically did really high quality journalism on private companies. So we saw the tech crunches of the world. We're doing a lot of just kind of repackaged up press releases uh, with not a whole lot of real analysis uh, going mm-hmm. into them on companies or it was funding announcements, et cetera. And we just thought that, 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 that private companies and startups deserve something better. So uh, we asked ourselves how we would find really good stories on companies. And uh, one idea that we came up with was to collect data on them uh, because we thought there was a lot of stuff on the public web. So maybe we could find companies that were uh, growing or, or, or shrinking that maybe people weren't reporting on. So we just one day started looking at Alexa scores in a spreadsheet for all the YC companies. And then we also started pulling in Twitter follower counts and stuff like that. And we just looked how it changed from week to week and we published the data and people seemed to think it was pretty interesting. So we decided to just kind of keep working on that and, and see where it went. So Danielle would publish a post every day and she's kind of incendiary sometimes on Twitter. So that may also helped. Um, and we even published a, 
a post on what we call zombie VCs, which are basically venture capital firms that haven't made an investment in the last year but are still taking meetings. Uh, so we published a list of people that, as far as we could tell by looking at the data, weren't actively investing in the last year, and it made a bunch of VCs really mad and uh, actually <laughs> got that. a lot of attention. Um, and a lot of them called us and they said, actually, we have taken, we have made an investment. We just didn't announce it. Please take our name off the list. And so, um, you know, we, we kind of went through that, but that was the really important moment because we ended up actually building a lot of relationships with, with investors and learning what they wanted. And as they started to look at the data we were collecting and publishing on startups, um, they said, Hey, you know, can we, can we get the spreadsheets that you guys are, are using to kind of find these stories? And we asked them why they wanted that. And eventually basically discovered that a lot of venture firms were, uh, trying to use data to discover companies that were growing that they could invest in. Um, so kind of taking like a money ball approach to venture capital, and then they were um, trying to be quantitative about it as opposed to a little bit less shooting from uh, the kind of their intuition. And so we saw an opportunity there. Um, NEA, which is a huge venture firm, actually offered us jobs to come work for them. Um, and we ended up turning that offer down and decided that we would just build some software and sell it to venture capital firms. And uh, that's kind of how it all got started. So how, what was like the tipping point for you to start? Was it because you were debating moving back and you thought this was a really, you know, I, it was a reason you just didn't want to go back to Ohio or was, were you thinking at the time, you know, this is actually the right timing, but also the right company and the right people? Well, I, I had known Danielle for a, a long time and I had always been really impressed by her. Uh, and the opportunity to, to, first of all, I love working on, on startups and um, the opportunity to not have to go take a job was really compelling to me for one. For two, uh, I knew the people and I, and, I, and I respected them and I liked them and I'd always want to work with them. So um, that was that was exciting. And it was just, you know, that's I, I, really not any more complex than that. I think it just, it was people that I liked and that I wanted to work with. And when I agreed to join up with them, we didn't even know what we were going to build. Um, it was mostly just, Hey, this will be fun. And, um, and you know, we did, we were barely paying ourselves anything, but it, it was something fun to work on with people that I cared about. And I think that that's kind of always been true about, about what I've decided to work on. Mm -hmm. And so now let's focus on your new venture. I know you're kind of in stealth mode, but you know, why do you, did you always think you were going to be a serial entrepreneur or, you know, what made you want to start another company, especially when a lot of founders can say it takes so much out of you to start one company to begin with. So let alone two. Yeah. Starting companies for me, I think is fundamentally about how I just hate working for people. <laughs> <laughs> and I think a lot of founders are that way. Um, just, you know, some founders will, they'll, they'll be successful at a company like, you know, Mark Andreessen and Ben Horowitz, they are, they were both independently very successful. And then they joined up and they started a venture firm. <laughs> like they didn't want to go work for anyone, anyone else. So they just started their own thing again. Um, I, yeah, I think that for me, I just really don't like, I don't like working for people. <laughs> yeah. I mean, fair enough. Um, but was there any reservations about, you know, starting over from the beginning or do you view it as an exciting, is that the phase you prefer? Um, yeah, I mean, I think there's there's definitely, I guess, you can have some some res I mean, it's always kind of scary. You really don't know what you're doing, um, and everyone tells you that you should go do something safe. You know, even my friends that encouraged me to do risky things were encouraging me, uh, over the last few months to to take you know a really well paying job. <laughs> um, but I don't know. I just I think that for me, I'm kind of a control freak, and I just like to be in control of my own destiny. And I think that 
I'm, I'm capable of, of finding ways to uh, to do that. And so it, it didn't even really feel like a choice. Yeah, I mean, I, I kind of love that. I think my, um, some of the founders I know are the same way. Uh, but let's go into what you were doing, you know, way, way before entrepreneurship. Um, so tell me about, you know, where you're from and kind of what your childhood was like. If you have siblings and what your parents did for a living, things like that. Yeah, um, let's see. So I kind of grew up, I've lived in a couple different cities. So I was in Denver until I was 10 or 11. And then I was in Philadelphia or just outside of Philadelphia um, up until high school. And then my parents moved to Boston while I was in college and then they moved back to Philadelphia. But um, my dad has um, worked in both the pharmaceutical industry and also in the software business. Um, at different points in his career, but he's always been a really hardworking guy um, who I think if you even asked him, he's had jobs that he has absolutely loathed and he's had jobs that he absolutely loved. Uh, but I think that more often than not, he had jobs that he would go and you know, he worked really, really hard, but he really didn't like the job, but he did it because he wanted to um, provide for like a really great opportunity for his family and his kids, which I'm really grateful for. So I think I learned a lot from my dad about um, the value of hard work, but also I learned a lot about how I want to not spend my time being quite as stressed out and talking in his sleep and all that um, about how much how much work sucks. So I think there's an also an, another opportunity, which is something that I always saw. Um, my mom, uh, my mom was a teacher, and then she decided to stay home with us, which is absolutely incredible, and she's just always been so supportive of everything that I do, no matter how crazy it is. But um, I think that both of them are really great at, at kind of teaching me that I had to, and anything beyond life's basic needs was something that I had to figure out how to provide for myself at a pretty early age. I remember I wanted like a video game console or something like that when I was 10 or 11 and maybe I was 12. And my dad told me that I had to go figure out a way to pay for it if I wanted it. Um, so I started mowing lawns around the neighborhood and uh, actually uh, decided that I'd print out a flyer and, uh, you know, hang it all around, but I hadn't needed a brand for my business. And all we had was a mar- it was like a, like all red, white, and blue stationery. <laughs> and, uh, so I figured I'd call it something all American. And I asked myself, well, what do we do? What services can we provide? Well, we can mow lawns, and, you know, we can, we can blow leaves off people's driveways. So I decided to call it all American mow and blow and hang it all over the, the, <laughs> the, the neighborhood. And, and I, and I offered, I think, $20 for a mo and $5 for a blow. And then my mom had to come in. She was laughing hysterically. She was like, tell me you didn't just hang this all over the neighborhood. And I did. And I think that all the all the men in the neighborhood found it so funny that a couple of them hired me. And I had a couple of customers. And that's and then I kind of learned how to um, be able to make money for myself. And I think that's kind of where some of it all started. So you're, you're definitely into the, uh, the shock and awe approach. Of, uh, <laughs> I had no idea. I was so naive. I was, I was just like such a, I was such a naive, ignorant little kid that I had no idea that it meant something completely different. <laughs> oh, I love that. Um, so how old were you then? I think it was 12 or 13 then. It's like, it was middle school. So besides your, uh, your mow and blow, was that the first time that you started thinking about entrepreneurship? Yeah, that, that really was. And then uh, when I was like 19 in college, a friend of mine uh, we were at a tailgate and he was like, Hey, hey what do you, what do you know about microbrewed be- microbreweries? My dad had homebrewed beer, uh, at, at one point when I was growing up and that's really all I knew. And he's like, well, what do you think about starting a microbrewery? 
And I was just like, I never really thought about that. And uh, we ended up getting together and doing a lot of home brewing. Started off with kind of really simple home brewing. We got really, really advanced and got into a method of home brewing that um, is not, it's pretty much the same way that beer is made in, in any brewery, but just on a smaller scale. And we decided to incorporate a company and we started to sell some of our friends our beer. And uh, then we found out that it's illegal for someone to own a majority share in a company who produces alcohol before you're 21, which probably should have known <laughs> done our research. Uh, but that was kind of my next venture. And that one, I think, is where I really, really caught the bug of, of starting starting companies. So at this point, did you ever think that you would have a, you know, you said you worked out of college somewhere else and you, you'd quit your job before moving to California. So was there a reason you just didn't want to start something immediately after college? Yeah, yeah. So um, after I after this brewery thing, I got a job at a um, at a software company in Columbus that was venture funded, and I worked there about ten or fifteen hours a week for a lot of college, and kind of learned what it was like to work inside of a business like that. But then, at some point, um, I met a guy who was you know, the iPhone had just come out, and the, the iPhone SDK had just come out, so iPhone apps were all very new. Um, but as soon as I, he was, this guy had one engineer, it was like him and his dad and an and a, and a iOS engineer. Um, and I saw what they were building and I just, I thought it was so cool. And I wanted to learn how to, how to run a company. I had at least learned from um, both my experiences at, as an intern doing, working at the software company and also at this brewery that I just, I knew that I didn't know a lot. So I wanted to learn from this guy about how to build a company. And so I, I went and worked for him and I, and I designed iPhone apps for a while and then eventually um, ended up kind of building other products there and also selling uh, software contracts to people who needed iPhone apps built. And so I did that for my senior year of college and the year after college. Uh, I worked for him and it was a really great experience. We built almost a, a, like a 15 or 20 person, basically um, iOS development agency by the time that I left, which was a really cool experience to just see a business grow like that and, and make sales and uh, learn how product works. And at that point, I thought that I had learned enough to be uh, to be really good. And that's when I quit my job and I moved to California. And then I also learned again <laughs> that, that I hadn't quite learned enough and I needed to go learn more. Um, and now here we are at after Mattermark, where I feel like I've learned enough again to go to go do it again. And then we'll see. We'll see what happens. I'm sure I'll interview you in 10 years and you'll be like, you know, I didn't know what I do. <laughs> no, yeah. Just, yeah. Who me. knows? Sometimes. Sometimes it takes people longer. Who knows? No, I'm just teasing. I, I do think, though, um, I really love what you just said, though, that you knew immediately that you didn't know. You knew what you didn't know, which I think that level of self-awareness is is extremely important as a founder, um, even if just to know who you need to hire on your team and, like, where to round out the holes that you have. Um, like, not one person obviously can't do everything. Oh, yeah, absolutely. So um, I think it's important that, to... Oh, sorry. Go ahead. No, no, go ahead. Yeah, I, I just think that uh, I think it's important that you that you know that you're at least that you try to be self-aware and you don't let your ego get in the way of, of what you don't know because that's the stuff that's going to keep you from from really moving forward. Sounds kind of tropey, but I think it's true. No, I, I agree. Um, and and since you've had a few co-founders now, what do you particularly look for when making this kind of partnership? Oh uh, yeah, that's a really good question. I think I think one thing that's really really important is alignment of your personal goals. You know, if one person wants to go, you know, 
build a company and, and just sell it and be out in five years and move to, you know, Bali or something, <laughs> then you need to know that. And if the other person wants to, you know, build a, their life's work and never work for anyone again, and that's what they're trying to do with the company, I think that you got to just make sure you're on the same page. Another one I think is, that is just really, really important is like values alignment. Um, because there's a lot of different ways to build a business. There's a lot of different styles of leadership. And um, I think that you have to share some of those things. I think, you know, I've heard uh, my mom and my dad and married couples always talk about how important it is that they share the same values because you're going to change a lot over the years. But if your values are similar, I think that um, you're able to really find a lot of common ground. And so I think that that's important. And then I think that the last one I would say is, is honesty with each other. Um, you can't mm -hmm. hold anything back. Uh, true, when you co-found a company with someone, you're partners. Um, and when you partner up with somebody, you've got to be 100% honest with them about what you want, about uh, how you're feeling, if there's something that makes you feel uneasy about the way that a conversation went. You know, you've got to uh, you've got to make sure that that you two are able to talk about that stuff. And I think a lot of people think that they're being honest, but really they'll walk away from a conversation with their potential co-founder. They're not really didn't really feel good about the conversation, and then they'll just let it sit and fester for a long time and. Um, that'll end up blowing up in their face a long time later. Yeah, I think it's it's hard though to necessarily a to be honest with yourself about what you want, and then um, to have the confidence enough to have those discussions. But again, I, th I think it's very vital. Yeah, I think it takes a lot of introspection. But um, you know, you're building an institution that's supposedly solving uh, a you know a huge problem, a huge inefficiency in in the world, and. Uh, it's no, I don't think that it would surprise, it would shock me if that's something that was just easy to do without thinking about it a lot. <laughs> yeah. And so, you know, we talk about culture a lot on, on the show and I'm thinking since you're a two-time entrepreneur, how are you going to go into your new company to make this culture kind of your own? And, and what do you think about, you know, you don't want to make this just another matter mark. You have a new co-founder. Um, how do you, you know, do that and make sure it's not necessarily just the same thing? Um, well, a part of it, part of culture is you either let it get defined as you go, or you, you try to set up a foundation at the beginning. Um, and I think that with this company, something that Josh and I are spending a lot of time on is, uh, articulating a really, really clear, uh, vision for the world that we want to be part of, of building, uh, making sure that the mission that we're on for the next 10 years is something that everyone inside the company and outside the company is is able to understand. Um, make sure that we're going to define a set of values that we really um, that we want to build the company based off of that we hire, fire, and promote on. Um, and then that we all agree on the problem that we're solving. Like having clarity and agreement and alignment on all of those things is something that um, I think is just critical to getting uh, a, a team of people run, you know, operating well. And, uh, and, and, and just knowing that it sounds really, it, it sounds kind of crazy that it, it sounds like overly simple to say that, but I think that that is actually incredibly hard to actually execute on and making sure that, that everyone in the organization knows that upfront. So that's something that I'm doing a lot of, uh, I'm spending a lot of, of time on at this company is just making sure that that's really, really clear, um, to both us as co-founders, to investors, and also, uh, to the team that we're going to build. So since transparency seems to be a really big theme of what you're talking about um, from both of your companies and even your 
you know, you're having the core values. I wonder, is that something that you had growing up where your family, like very much communicative or, or did you kind of learn to do that throughout the course of your career? Uh, I don't, I mean, I wouldn't say that my family was dysfunctionally non-communicative, but I don't, <laughs> I wouldn't, I wouldn't say that, but I, I, there's something I've always just been obsessed with is like, I is, is just learning. Like I just love to learn new things and what makes learning new things possible is when information is available. And so you know, when I've taught myself, whether it was teaching myself all, all the things about what I would need to build a microbrewery and reading books and, and buying books and Googling around on the internet. Like there's so much that you can learn if the information is available. And that kind of brings me to what I'm working on now. And even mm-hmm. at Mattermark, we were doing this is that there's a lot of information that isn't available that is still unnecessarily scarce, but incredibly valuable. And I think that, that it, unlocking that box is going to be really, really interesting to just the possibilities of the world that we could live in where people could have access to that scarce information. So um, I just, that's just something that I'm, I'm personally deeply passionate about. And so can you tell us anything about your new company? Yeah, I, I can tell you that I think that there's a lot of, of expertise that is unnecessarily scarce in the world, whether it's in someone's head or it's locked up inside of an organization or mm-hmm. uh, you name it, that if we can make that public, um, that I think a lot of people are going to be able to learn new things. I think that uh, that's where I'll stop. So it's basically what we're working on. And uh, we've kind of been playing around with this format that Josh has, has come up with called Open Guides. Um, which are basically the most comprehensive, up-to-date, collaborative guides on a given subject. And once they're published, the community can continue to to edit them. But the whole key to it is that that it's driven by experts um, and real experts who who are kind of the top of their field in a given subject. And, uh, you know, anyone can come and read them and then um, we'll, we'll see where it goes. I love that. I think it's a, I think the timing of that's really interesting, especially given all the, uh, the hype around the fake news with the political election and everything. Um, and just how all the fake information is out there. Uh, and I loved your first guide on CRISPR. So that was really interesting. Yeah. You know, I think that the news is a whole different beast, which yeah. I think is important, but some here, like one trend that I noticed this time around starting a company versus even four years ago or six years ago is that when I Googled, four, six years ago, different questions that I had about starting a company, I'd get a really good resource, especially at like Venture Hacks, which is the blog that uh, Naval and Nivy from AngelList had before AngelList. Like that's one thing that I learned and I found a ton of stuff on there. But right now, if you go and you Google uh, a lot of these questions, you end up getting like links to entrepreneur.com and inc.com. Mm-hmm. And they're just not very helpful. And it's like, it's like content marketing. It's written by pseudo experts um, who nine times out of 10 haven't started companies, haven't been where you are. Uh, and they're like, they're writers, which is nice, but like, they're not really there to try to help you. What they're trying to do is just sell some fucking ads. Oops, sorry. I probably shouldn't have said that. Um, <laughs> all right. Um, so anyway, that's that's what I, I think that that's that's really what I see is that there's a really big incentive misalignment between people who are trying to sell ads and content marketers who are trying to sell products 
uh, as opposed to people who are genuinely interested in sharing expertise across the, the internet. Yeah, I agree. Um, well, I'm going to switch gears and ask you just a few fun questions to end the, um, end the interview. So what would you say, what product are you like a very big advocate of that you can't stop telling people about? Ooh, that's a good question. Um, what product? You know, I love the Philips Hue uh, like wireless light bulbs and you can change the colors on. I think it's awesome. <laughs> and I have an Alexa at home too, so I can just walk home and tell Alexa to turn my lights on and change the colors of them. And I just think it's, I think it's really cool. It, feels, it makes me feel like I live in the future. <laughs> yes. uh, I love that. Uh, okay. And if you could interview one founder, who would you most want to interview? Jeff Bezos. And why is that? I think Jeff Bezos is the greatest businessman alive. What would you want to ask him then? That is a good question. What would I ask Jeff Bezos? I think I would ask Jeff Bezos, what are the three things in the world that are most important to him, ideas or people? Yeah. That would be that would be interesting. So actually, I think, I think like, I'd ask him this: What are the three most important ideas? That's what I would ask Jeff Jeff Bezos. The three most important ideas. Well, I personally love ending that way. Um, maybe one day Jeff Bezos will be on my show, but I, I highly doubt it. But well, you know, there's so much made. But anyway, I'm so happy that you were able to come on today. So thank you so much for everything. I really appreciate it. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you. that's it for this week's episode of 52 Founders. I'm your host, Chrissy Costa, and be sure to check out 52founders.com and follow us on Twitter at 52founders to stay up to date. I'll see you next week for another episode.